According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Our growth comes through the Scriptures. Join me once again, if you would, in Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2, and uh, we're looking at verses 15 and 16. We'll see how far we get with that tonight, and then 17 and 18, and that will wrap up the uh, paragraph that we've been dealing with for some time here, titled Work Out Your Salvation. And then we'll be ready for the travel arrangements. This is the second half of the chapter when we talk about Timothy and Epaphroditus. Um, it's useful, actually, because uh, not, not only are they travel arrangements, it's also um, a commentary on seminaries. We have a, a commentary on uh, Timothy's training and his preparation for ministry that was far and above anybody else in his class. So he was the top of his class, not because of his academics, not because of his Greek or his Hebrew, but because of his heart. And so we're going to be dealing with that. I'm, I'm anxious to get into it. As it says uh, in verse 19, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly so that I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. For I have no one else of kindred spirit who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare. For they all seek after their own interests, not those of Christ Jesus. And so those verses right there really pinpoint what is required of a man who's in training before he would ever be considered eligible to candidate or take a church or be trusted with a pulpit or, or shepherding of, of souls. And so uh, beyond the, the, the practical aspects of travel arrangements comes the, uh, the, the spiritual ministry that's going to take place when Timothy is, uh, is indeed sent to the Philippians. But we're not quite there yet because we still have the final point five and point six and their subpoints to deal with here in uh, do all things without grumbling or disputing and the consequences. All right. It's not just a command, you know, with an or else attached to it. It is a command and, uh, and or a prohibition in the, in the sense of a negative command. And it has benefits that are attached to it, benefits in time and eternity. And uh, that's what we're going to talk about here tonight, the benefits of not grumbling, all right? So before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer and humble ourselves for the authority of the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your Word and the blessing we have to assemble together. Father, this is uh, your grace provision to us, and we want to honor you as we humble ourselves before you. We don't want to taunt you, Father, as we were studying this morning, the difference between taunting and honoring. So, Father, we're here tonight to honor you, to honor your word, to humble ourselves. We're presenting ourselves before you as workmen needing not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. So, Father, we call upon your faithfulness to open the eyes of our understanding that we might receive the word implanted. We thank you and praise you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, and so we've seen uh, so far really five, four main points, and we're ready to tackle number five here tonight in the uh, Work Out Your Salvation section. We already talked about the context of the so then that links this passage from the passage before it, the kenosis passage, the humbling passage, when Jesus emptied himself and took the form of a bondservant, that the whole doctrine of, of his humility is the basis for the so then, whereby we are commanded to, uh, to work out our salvation with fear 
and trembling. We then had uh, under point two the details of fear and trembling. The salvation of yourselves keep on working out. It uh, sounds a little bit like Yoda, but that's the word order that the uh, the Greek language has there. So uh, we have it. Maybe Yoda was a Greek scholar. I don't know, but uh, he has uh, that weird way of, of speaking, and that's reflected in that verse there. And then under point three, we talked about the uh, the blessing of relaxation when all the pressure is taken off because it's not up to us. We're not the ones ultimately doing the work. It's God who's at work in you, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So the better we do at getting ourselves out of the way and let it, allowing God to do the work, the better we're going to be at coming alongside and operating as His fellow worker, which is what we're called to be. And so otherwise it just may seem ludicrous, the fact that I'm expected to work out my own salvation. Are you kidding me? How am I going to do that? Um, well, God is at work in you, both to will and to work of His good pleasure. And so we have a lot of subpoints there. Under point four, we looked at the antithesis of fear and trembling being the grumbling and disputing. In fact, the prohibition we have here in verse 14. I keep looking at it, and in English, Greek, or whatever other language you want to look at, and there's no uh, fine print, okay? There's no exceptions. There's no escape clauses. It doesn't say, you know, do all things without grumbling or disputing, except for you, Pastor Bob, you're okay. Uh, God cuts you some slack and you can, you can grumble. Uh, it doesn't say that, all right? No one is exempted from this. All of us are included in, in the fact that He expects us to walk in the light, to be fellow workers with Him, and not to grumble about what it is that He calls for us to do. And so this has really been the last couple of weeks we've been looking at these, talking about ganguzo and ganguzmas for the grumbling, and talking about the dialogue, dialogismas and dialogizomai, here for the disputing, where we want to argue about it, we want to dispute it, we want to reason as far as why uh, God is wrong and why we have a better plan. There's no call for that, all right? When we grumble, we're illustrating the, uh, the Old Testament example of the Exodus generation. When we dispute, there really is not an Old Testament allusion. There's really nothing that comparable except perhaps uh, what Job wishes he could do. And uh, in the book of Job, he, wish, he has a dialogue with his fellow, with his fellow critics, uh, with his friends that showed up. But what he really wants to do is he wants to storm the gates of heaven and have a, have a dialogue with God himself to argue his case, to defend his position, to justify himself and to demonstrate that God is unjust. And uh, uh, he's convinced that if he just has a hearing, he can convince, he can convince God that he's unjust. And uh, that's what he has to repent of by chapter 40, by the end of the book. So uh, there really is not a, uh, a clear uh, Septuagint or Old Testament allusion to this concept unless you count the, uh, the, the fevered dream that Job wishes he could have someday. Uh, so anyway, that's uh, grumbling and disputing, and uh, we're told not to do either. And uh, not only are we told not to do either, but then we're given, we're given benefits. We're given benefits for not doing either. And to me, that's sweet. That's uh, just thank you, Lord. You know, uh, He doesn't do that, for example, in the Ten Commandments, right? I mean, He says, thou shalt not murder. But then he doesn't you know, spend a couple of verses explaining why it's good not to murder or, or thou shalt not commit adultery and then giving you the benefits for not being an adulterer. You know, in, 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 the, in the Ten Commandments you just have these don't do these you know, prohibitions. And uh, here though we've got the blessing that goes with the prohibition. So that 
you will prove yourselves to be blameless. And this is what we get to under point five. Grumble-free service, which is really grumble-free and dispute-free service. Obedience to verse 14 has temporal and eternal benefits. All right? Uh, the, the better we do at obeying verse 14, at not grumbling, not disputing, if we have that, that, that uh, sincerity and purity of, of devotion to Christ that Corinthians talks about, um, these benefits, they're in time and eternity, right? Temporal means within time and, of course, eternal, beyond time to all eternity. And this is what we see here. So you will prove yourselves, you will demonstrate visibly you will exhibit yourselves to be blameless and innocent. That's our positional reality and it's on display. Not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, not because we've never sinned or we don't fall short when we do, but when we do we confess, we're restored back to fellowship and it's that basis. It's the basis we're going to stand before the Bema seat and so it's the basis that we exhibit that to this lost and dying world while we're still here. You will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. And you say, well, I don't like these people. <laughs> I don't want to be in the midst. I want, to, I want to come out from among them and be me separate. You know, I, want to, I, want to, uh, I just want to live in a commune. I, I don't want to know any unbelievers. I just want to surround myself with nothing but saved people. Well, you know, we can't leave the planet until He calls us home. While we're still here, we're ambassadors while we're still here, we'd have a witness, we'd have a testimony, and, uh, and they, they may not be the most pleasant people in the world, but guess what? We have a work assignment, and we are to be children of God in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, especially today. Our generation is the crookedest and perversest, I think, uh, in uh, a long, long time. Among whom you appear as lights in the world. And uh, as I said on Sunday, when you, uh, when you uh, shine your light, uh, you become the target. You know, you shine your light, you're telling the enemy, here I am. And uh, you're, uh, yeah, yes, you can see better. And yes, you can, uh, you're not stumbling in the darkness because the light is shining, but you're also quite visible to the adversary that wants to put you down. And that's uh, just, that's just, it just goes with the territory. That's what we're called to do. So we're going to talk about that. We also have, so those are temporal benefits. Then the eternal benefits, as we see in verse 16, holding fast the word of life. The book of Hebrews equivalent would say uh, holding fast the good confession. uh, Holding to the good confession. Uh, So that in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. So we're living day by day waiting for the day of Christ, waiting for eternity, recognizing that the trumpet could sound tonight. The trumpet could sound before the end of this hour. And, uh, and there we have it. So that's what we're going to get into tonight. I failed to uh, offer any Q&A time, didn't I? So let's, uh, we can pause momentarily and, uh, and do that. Here I was getting a whole introduction going and getting all ramped up to, to finish this. And Christopher, do you have the microphone? The microphone is ready. So do we have a lead-off question? We have a lead-off question there, a lead-off question there. We'll uh, go to Bill first. I also have one on email that came all the way from Australia, so I want to answer that tonight as well. You had me worried there. I've been waiting to ask this question for a while. <laughs> all right. Um, this is actually a two-part question, but it's on the same topic. Okay. Um, we see several times in Leviticus where it talks about burnt offerings and those being a fragrant aroma. But um, my question is that we see in... Um, 
Second uh, Corinthians, sorry, no, Ephesians five two, uh-huh. where it says that uh, Jesus was offered, um, uh, was an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Yeah, and we also see that uh, in Hebrews nine twenty two that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. Now. In Leviticus, I understand it was, you know, a burnt offering and the aroma went up. Of course, Christ wasn't burnt. So how do we kind of correlate with Leviticus and the burnt offerings and the fragrant aroma and Christ being a fragrant aroma? Yeah, yeah, that's uh, easy enough because all of the, the animal ritual was shadow doctrine. It was a foreshadowing. It was shadow doctrine looking forward to the fulfillment, the reality is Christ. Corinthians also calls him our Passover. Christ, our Passover, has been crucified. And so, yes, he's the Passover lamb. He even died on Passover. Um, he's also the, the, the burnt offering. He's also the, the, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering. All the offerings are a picture of Christ one way or the other. And, and all of them are combined in what he did on Friday, April 3rd, 33 AD. And so, yes, he was a, sac- a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Okay, so the, the, the sacrificial offer in Leviticus, the shedding of blood, and mm-hmm. then the burnt offering, those were two separate offerings for two separate offenses then? There was a, a, a huge variety. When you go to chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, you get five different offerings there. Okay. Burnt offering, meal offering, trespass offering, sin offering, and peace offering. Or I'm forgetting one. But yeah, that's all through, through Leviticus. And that's for different mm-hmm. sins. Okay, thank you. You want more in Leviticus? Um, Corpus Christi Bible Church, Pastor Dan Craw, is currently going through a painstakingly tedious, uh, he'll probably be doing this for 20 years, so uh, I recommend that. Yes, sir. Yes, the, uh, we, we just went through, we just had Easter celebration of the uh, resurrection of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. Um, you have many a times uh, come up with April 3rd, 33 AD, as uh-huh. your belief of, uh, I believe, is uh, his his death and burial. Correct. Nisan 14 on the Hebrew calendar. That is Nisan 14 Hebrew calendar. So it is a known date. And how would we... Yes. How would we translate that over to our current uh, dating system? Yeah, there's different ways. Uh, I, I tend to use the April 3rd date because that's the Gregorian date. And we are presently on a Gregorian calendar. We've been on a Gregorian calendar since Pope Gregory. You know, the 1500s, basically. Although England was slow to adopt it, England didn't finally adopt it until the 1700s. So the American colonies uh, didn't, didn't adopt it until the 1700s. Um, but eventually we got caught up on the Gregorian calendar. If, if, if you want to, the reason why the Gregorian date's better is because that's where we are today. Mm-hmm. But technically they were on the, the Julian calendar. Julius Caesar had put the, them on the, the Julian calendar in, in 44 BC. So uh, the Julian calendar is April 1st. But, I mean, who wants to celebrate Jesus dying on April Fool's Day, right? So um, the, the April 1st is the Julian date, April 3rd is the Gregorian date, or Nisan 14 is the, is the Hebrew date. And 33 AD is, I think, the most accurate. There are scholars, though, that would defend a 30 AD and that would defend a 32 AD. Those are the three most common years that are debated back and forth. But... Um, I think that the best candidate for a lot of reasons is, is, is uh, 33 AD for where Nisan 14 falls on a Friday and uh, whereby he's crucified on a Friday and he, he's raised on a Sunday as the text says. They went to the, to the tomb early on Sunday morning 
And uh, that's when they found the tomb empty. So uh, if you want more, I recommend Harold Honer and his chronological aspects of the life of Christ. He details all of that to, to a pretty powerful extent. Okay, and I have one more question here. Uh-huh. Okay, so when the uh, spies uh, spied out the promised land, uh-huh. uh, it was the land of milk and honey. Yes. Now it's like a desert wasteland in most of the areas. Uh, what happened? Oh, I'll tell you, a, a lot happened. And, and over centuries, over millennia, a lot can happen. You know, the Sahara used to be forested. You know, what happened? Uh, Lebanon, by the way, used to be an amazing evergreen cedar, you know, and, and now you got Hezbollah there and you got a, a wasteland in Lebanon. And, and so, yeah, that kind of thing happens. And so, uh, but it's promised to be back to the, to the Eden conditions in the millennial kingdom. So, and it even is, too. Just when you look at the, the founding of the modern state of Israel, what it was like back then, what it was like uh, in, in the early days of the Zionist movement in the 1800s, it was a wasteland. When Mark Twain traveled the, uh, the Holy Land, and he kept a journey. Have you ever read that? Mark Twain kept a journey when he traveled through the Holy Land in, uh, in the 1800s. And it was just an absolute waste. And, uh, and now it's a garden compared to, because of the hard work of the Jewish people and, and what they've done with irrigation, with, with, uh, with everything they've done for land reclamation and so forth. Okay, thank you. Uh-huh. All right, so I did start late on the questions. Apologize for that. Do we have other questions tonight? The one in email, um, Val May is her name, and she listens to us regularly. She even asked about my father. Her father's 102 and in uh, better shape than my father, so we, we pray for each other and our fathers. But She says, I have a question about 1 Corinthians 15, 23-25. Can you please clarify the order of events and how can this be used as an argument against the fullness of time dispensation? I heard that the critical text and majority text have two participles, parentheses, when, in different tenses, which changes the order of the events. And if you look at the majority text, this does not support another dispensation after the millennium. I hope this makes sense. Well, it does kind of. Um, yeah, 1 Corinthians 15, in talking about the, the resurrection, and then comes the end. So uh, in Christ, all are, or in Adam, all die. In Christ, all are made alive. That's verse 22. But each in his own order. And so we have a, uh, an order of resurrections. And some people read this and they only see two resurrections. Other people see this and go, no, wait a minute, that's three resurrections. Because there's first fruits Christ, after that, those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end. And that's three things. First fruits Christ, after that, those who are Christ that is coming, then comes the end. All right? And, and you've got to take that, then comes the end, as the third of the mentioned uh, resurrections in order. Because the resurrection of the end is the main resurrection that everybody's known about since the Old Testament. Job talked about it, Daniel talked about it, Isaiah talked about it, uh, Jesus talked about it. Anybody that talked about resurrection, it was the resurrection on the last day. It was the resurrection at the end. Okay, uh, Do you remember in John 11 when Lazarus had died and Mary and Martha were boohooing and Jesus said, your brother will rise again and and they said, yes, Lord, I know, my brother will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. You know, like, thanks a lot, that really encourages me today. I miss my brother today. You know, but the point is, they all understood 
that the resurrection of the last day, that that, that was going to be as part of their eschatology, that's what they were looking forward to when everybody is raised to enjoy eternity in, uh, from an Old Testament perspective, that's what they had to look forward to. So when Paul is teaching it here, Paul actually adds two things in front of that. The resurrection of Christ on Easter Sunday and then the resurrection of the church, the rapture of the church as those who are his at his, at his parousia, at his coming. Then comes the end. All right. Now once he mentions then comes the end, then Paul gets a little bit off track until he gets in. And really he doesn't get back to resurrection until verse 29. Okay? If you look down further on the page you get to verse 29 and uh, he finally resumes his resurrection topic when he talks about the baptism of the dead, if the dead are not raised at all. And he'll be, he'll be in a resurrection mode for the rest of the chapter. But verses 24 through 28 then, when he mentions then comes the end, he then throws a lot of other things out there. Uh, and the mention of the end is what triggers this kind of side trip, this rabbit trail. And so he talks about when, when, when. And that's what, uh, that's what gets debated. That's what my paper was about in Houston. That's what some of the, the uh, argument against it comes from. Uh, comes from, um, in some cases, a verb tense. In some cases, uh, she's not correcting her question. They aren't participles. Really, the only difference between the, the majority text and the critical text is the verb for hands over when he hands over the kingdom. And that verb right there for handing over, uh, paradidomi, uh, that is, does have a difference between the critical text and the, and the majority text. If, if you prefer a Byzantine majority text tradition, then it's an era subjunctive. If you prefer the Alexandrian uh, critical, uh, critical text tradition, then it's a present subjunctive. And, uh, and so there's, there's arguments that, that come about there on that basis. And, and really, it, it, it centers on how do we connect these two verbs? What do we do with the hands-over verb and what do we do with the abolished verb? Okay? Because when he abolishes all rule, authority, and power, that there's no doubt about that one. That one is an error subjunctive. Okay? And so how do we link, do we either link two error subjunctives or do we have a present subjunctive followed by an error subjunctive? And then grammatically that opens up uh, questions and legitimate questions that, that need to be addressed. However, I do think that those questions are um, secondary. And, and actually I think they're minimized because whether you take it as a present or an aorist either way, the fact is as those two verbs are not connected with the same when. Okay? Okay, I'm boring you to tears here tonight, but let me, let me just make this real quick so she can hear on the MP3 and send me a thank you email in the morning. Um, it's, there's a if I put it in English, I can talk about uh, back in the days when Bob and Alethea were born. See what I did there? I only had one when, but I had an, an and in between. Back in the days when Bob and Alethea were born. Or what if I say it this way? Back in the days when Bob was born and when Alethea was born. Does it make a difference if I have a when in front of each of those two things? Or if I only have a single when with, a, with multiple things connected to it? It does make a difference, all right? Uh, and, and particularly if I have three things connected to it or if I have three different whens, okay? So that's, uh, that's part of the puzzle. And uh, anyway, some people really get worked up about things like the last enemy that will be abolished is death, Okay? 
the last enemy that will be abolished is death. And, uh, and so that, they kind of, they kind of uh, lock in on the great white throne at that point because there's no more death after the late, great, after the, uh, great white throne. Questions like that. Anyway, it's kind of a long answer to a, maybe a shorter question. And so hopefully this will make sense as she listens to the MP3. And if not, um, she has my email so she can answer that. Um, she also says, I recognize the difference between the day of Christ and the day of the Lord. We've talked about that on Sunday. And yes, the day of the Lord Jesus is the same as the day of Christ or the day of Christ Jesus. And so that's the rapture, that's not uh, tribulation and second advent. Anyway, the Australians are praying for us here at Austin Bible Church and we can be thankful for that. Any other questions? Bill, we'll give you our last question and then we'll return to Philippians. So. I'm sorry, did you put the microphone away already? Yeah, we started late. That's my fault. Just for my own clarification, uh, and then the end, is that um, the start of the millennium or is that the start of the thousand generations? The end is the end. And the end is very broad. The end includes tribulation, it includes second advent, it includes millennium, it includes great white throne, it includes new heavens and new earth, it includes great abdication, it includes eternity future. That's all under the end. And uh, Jesus preached it. Jesus preached, uh, in, in fact, he, he preached about warning signs, about the beginning of birth pangs, and then he was very quick to say, but that is not yet the end. And that is not yet the end. And then he talks about, uh, you'll see the abomination of desolation, and then the end will come. And so the end is not a pinpoint event. The end is a very broad uh, expression. Sometimes it's called that day or the last day or the latter days. Uh, it's, it's a very broad term. And so when you have a very broad term like the end and then you have when, 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 when within that, that can span a significant period of time. So that's the, that's the application there. All right, so out of order tonight, but returning back to uh, Philippians. We want to focus tonight on the grumble-free service. The grumble-free service. So do all things without grumbling or disputing so that in the blessings of having a a, uh, purpose clause or uh, these expressions of result so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. Not just so that you will be blameless and innocent, but that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent. All right? Do you like proof texts? Do you like mathematical proofs? Okay, I don't know if you ever took math classes or different kinds of math classes in high school and college and whatnot, but things that drove me up a wall were the proofs that we had to do. And it's just, to me, it was insulting that uh, I gave you the right answer, didn't I? Now why do I have to prove it? But the teacher always insisted, you know, trigonometry, calculus, other levels of math, that it was not good enough to simply have the correct answer. That you also had to then prove it. You had to demonstrate the proof. You had to know the laws and the theorems and the the methods by which you got to those answers. And uh, well, something similar here in the sense of proving yourselves to be blameless and innocent. And the Dokimazo vocabulary here is exactly that. It is is an evaluation for approval. It's like a quality inspection in a factory. It's, uh, 
It's, uh, it was used in the ancient world when a blacksmith would test the quality of his metal as he's forging a sword. And if it didn't pass the Dakiyamazo test, he didn't finish the sword. It melted down and he started over. And that was the aspect of Dakiyamazo. There is no uh, room for failure. Dakiyamazo is always testing for approval. And, uh, and so to end up Dakiyamay, to end up uh, proven as, uh, as this is the point. And so we, it's the same thing in Romans 12, by the way. We prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. That's why we're uh, renewed in the spirit of our minds. That's why we're not transformed, so we can prove the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Here it is, proving yourselves to be blameless and innocent, children of God above reproach. So we have temporal and eternal benefits. The eternal, likewise, is a, a second time now that we've had the day of Christ mentioned. And uh, back in chapter 1 and verse 10, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. And, uh, and that's what we have. So do you ever get tired of the test? Have, are you tired of enduring? Are you tired of running with endurance the race that's set before you? Uh, do you want to you know, have, sit down and take a, take a, a pit stop in this, in this race? <laughs> you know? Well, we're told uh, the day of Christ Jesus is what we're looking forward to. And how, uh, how sad would it be if you finally just threw in the towel and gave up and, and uh, decided it wasn't worth it and you're done and you, you, you give up on the Lord, you give up on His Word, you give up on, on the test, you walk away from Bible class, you walk away from everything, and uh, the very next day is when the trumpet sounds and we're, <laughs> and we're caught up to be with the Lord where you made it to within one day of the rapture and you, uh, and you threw in the towel. How sad is that? Well, today could be the day and we want to prove ourselves children of light. So the present blessing <coughs> is a testimony. The present testimony to the crooked and perverse generation. So it's not only is it a contrast it's not only that they're crooked and we're straight. They're perverse and we're not. It's not just a contrast between us and them. It's a contrast and a display. A contrast of us to them. <coughs> it's a present testimony to the crooked and perverse generation. Interestingly enough, this is what God wanted the, the, uh, the Jews to be in the Old Testament. And the problem was they never did. The problem was they kept imitating the Gentiles around them instead of demonstrating themselves as a holy people. See, So when you go back to Deuteronomy 32, you're going to see this. <coughs> Deuteronomy 32, uh, we see that uh, his earthly people should have uh, been a demonstration of this. Uh, the problem was, of course, what? They spent all their time grumbling. <laughs> they were such grumblers, they never could be the uh, children of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So in, De- in uh, Deuteronomy 32, the Song of Moses, kind of the last testament that he gives here before he dies, he uh, composes this song, and, and this is what the whole chapter is about. Um, Give ear, O heavens, and let me speak. Let the uh, earth hear the words of my mouth. Let my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, as the droplets on the fresh grass, as the showers on the herb. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. 
If you're preaching anything other than Christ, you're preaching the wrong thing. If you're preaching yourself, you're preaching the wrong thing. Ascribe greatness to our God. To God be the glory. Great things He has done. The rock, His work is perfect. For all His ways are just. A God of faithfulness and without injustice. Righteous and upright is He. They have acted corruptly towards Him. They are not His children because of their defect, but are a perverse and crooked generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he is not He your Father who has bought you? He has made you and established you. And it goes on. This is just how the, the song begins. Because He's, he's getting ready to die. It's been over 40 years. He's talking to the, the children of the Exodus generation. We call them the wilderness generation. They're about to cross over and, uh, and become the conquest generation when the next generation takes over. And, and there's just as much grumblers. And it's, uh, he calls them crooked. He calls them perverse. And so uh, it's an interesting expression. So he says, don't grumble like them and don't be the crooked and perverse generation like them. Be children of light. Be the testimony to the crooked and perverse generation all around you, to those unbelievers, to those that are not the covenant people of God. Say, there's a reason why He saved you, and it's not to be like them. The time past is already sufficient for you to have carried out those desires. All right, so this is our present testimony, manifesting the light of heaven to this fallen world. Manifesting the light of heaven to this fallen world. You ever stop to think about that? How uh, the first thing as God's act of creation was let there be light and stop to consider that that was day one and sun, moon, and stars don't appear until day four. Okay, So there's, there's another dynamic at work in the, in the uh, piercing that spiritual darkness when he says let there be light allowing for the manifestation of God's own divine glory to be exhibited in this material creation. And yet that's that's what started the, the restoration of the earth for Adamic habitation. That was a, a function of Israel, was to be a light. That's the function of the church, to be a light. We see it again and again and again. And so uh, these should all be familiar to us. Psalm 119 and verse 130. The only chapter in the Bible has got 130 verses in it. <laughs> The unfolding of your word gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. You know, it's, it's a universal expression. It's a biblical expression. It's been around. It's why, and we still use it today, even unbelievers use it, you know, when the light bulb comes on. They draw a light bulb in their cartoons and whatever. It's just, oh, I get it. The light comes on. And, and there you have it. Or I saw the light. Okay? So the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. And so you're a believer, you're living your life according to the Word of God, what are you doing? It's the unfolding of the Word. You might be the only Bible that that person sees. And yet there you are. And you're living out the Word of God in your life. And they see that. Proverbs 4.18 This is a nice prophecy as well, I think. The path of the righteous... And this is in contrast because there's uh, the way of the wicked is described ahead of that and we want no part of any of that. Um, here's a parent pleading with his child to uh, not run with the wrong crowd and to live out the Word of God. 
Okay, so I mean, what parent hasn't hasn't uh, poured out his heart like this? And um, so, verse fourteen says, "Do not enter the path of the wicked. Do not proceed in the way of evil men. Avoid it. Do not pass by it. Turn away from it. Pass on." For they cannot sleep unless they do evil. They are robbed of sleep unless they make someone stumble. For they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. That is a death style that you want no part of. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn that shines brighter and brighter until the perfect day or until the full day. And so get on the right path. If you've made mistakes, put it behind you and get on the right path. Start today. Start now. Today can be the, 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 the first day of, of light out of a long season of darkness. And that's fine. The, your first step is like, the, is like the light of dawn. You know, a little glimmer of light and a little ray of hope that, wait a minute, is daytime on the way? Am I through in the darkness? Am I through with night? And then the longer you stay on that path, what happens? Yeah, it is dawn and it is getting lighter and it is getting lighter and now it's full day, the perfect day. And uh, anyway, you can, you can view that me- metaphor in a couple of ways as a, as a single day or even prophetically looking forward to the fullness of time. And, and uh, Larkin liked to call that the perfect day. And he called it the perfect day, labeled it on his chart as the perfect day and tacked uh, Proverbs 4.18 on his diagram. But be that as it may. How about Matthew chapter 5? Sermon on the Mount. And uh, directed not to the church, but directed to Israel. While the kingdom of heaven was still at hand, all right, I believe this is still valid and will be applied to Israel in the millennium, that this, you could think of the Sermon on the Mount as the Magna Carta of uh, the millennial kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's, it is uh, the, op- the kingdom law under which they're going to operate on the millennial earth. But in this includes the idea of being salt and being light and the value that they have to the Gentiles around them as salt and light. And so um, verse 13 introduces the salt. You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. That's the salt analogy. Then there's the light analogy. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket. I mean, how dumb is that? You ever turn your flashlight on and then stick it in a drawer? You know? Why? Um, No one does that. Because the design and the purpose and the function of a light is to illuminate, to shine, to, to show you things. And so since you are the light, what are you designed to do? You're designed to, to spotlight, to show things, to illuminate and uh, the idea that, that you can be an effective light and be hidden away, the idea that, uh, you know, I think too many Christians think they can be uh, undercover secret agents. <laughs> you know, they don't want to be soldiers in the angelic conflict. They want to be uh, undercover operatives, spies. In fact, they want to be so deep undercover they never have to do anything remotely Christian or, or, or leave any kind of a witness or testimony that they know the Lord or that they're Christian, or that they're saved, all right? And uh, that's not what we're called to do. That's not what we're called to do. We should be shouting it from the rooftops, as it says here. Um, So you don't light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand. 
and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way. And I love that. Let your light shine. Which means it's a passive imperative. You're not the source of the light. You're not the one producing the light. It's it's being produced by God through you. And let it happen. Let it. Let it. You know, I mean, what do you got to do to obey a command of let something happen? You know? It means you don't stop it from happening. So let your light shine. In other words, don't go carnal. Don't uh, thwart the plan of God by your own willfulness and your own negative volition. Don't walk in darkness. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and be impressed with you. No. They may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. That's what it comes down to. You put yourself on display not as the most perfect Christian never walked the planet and oh look at me and I'm great. You put yourself on display as the biggest bumbling buffoon that God's grace can save and do something with and you say you know by the grace of God I am what I am. Thank God that He's a God of grace. Look what God can do with a, with a knucklehead. All right? And that sets the table for anybody else. You can say look Paul said the same thing. As the chief of all sinners, look, God demonstrates through me as a perfect example for anybody that can get saved and walk in the light and bear fruit. And that's what it's about. So they're supposed to see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And that's what it comes down to. You know, uh, there's going to be a, you know, the, the whining at the great white throne when the unbelievers are objecting and, and trying to convince God that they belong in heaven, they don't belong in the lake of fire. Um, and yet every tongue will confess, every knee will bend. And, and I think the grace of God is such that His fairness will be on display. And He will bring to their remembrance all the testimonies that they had been given. And so if they want to try to blame Him or accuse Him of being unfair, saying, well, I never heard the gospel, it's going to cross their mind every single Christian that ever gave them the gospel. It's going to cross their mind every single a saint that lived his life as an exhibit as a child of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Every born again believer that was a living testimony to the Word of God is going to cross their mind. And even better, we're going to be standing there with with Christ in judgment. And they're going to see us. And so uh, they will. They will see your good works. They will glorify your Father who's in heaven. And it might be at that moment when they bend their knee and confess and get cast into the lake of fire for all eternity. And that gets fulfilled. All right. And so we have the light issues there. And then we have Ephesians 5. We have Ephesians 5. Bill's been working on this. Some of you have been looking at this. In fact, uh, we had the armor of God from Ephesians 6 last Sunday and, or a couple Sundays ago and then we got uh, filling of the Spirit coming up and another couple of weeks. Some good things that our student teachers are preparing. But here in uh, Ephesians 5 where we're told to uh, not get drunk with wine for that is dissipation but be filled with the Spirit. This is the chapter that just very practically takes all the theology uh, chapters 1 through 3 brings it forward into chapters 4, 5, and 6 for, for application. And in this, as we see, 
the screen says 8 through 13, but really 1 through 7 kind of leads up to that, doesn't it? Um, Be imitators of God as beloved children. Be imitators of God as beloved children. So it's so simple. You know, this is how this is how life works. This is how uh, the, you know, in the animal realm, in the human realm, I mean, this is how life works. The offspring learns by imitation. And here we are, children of God. How are we going to learn? By imitation. We have the perfect example with Christ, our older brother. And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and sacrifice to God as, as a fragrant aroma. See it? Okay. But fornication or any impurity or greed must not even be named among you. So it's not, not only is it a sin to do those things, but it's a sin if there's a reputation that people have reason to think that maybe you're a part of that kind of a thing. It can't even be named among you, as is proper among saints. Do you see the order on this? This is not trying to be a goody tushus and earn eternal life. You're given eternal life by grace through faith. Now walk that way. What's fitting? What's proper? What's appropriate for saints? You're a saint. Why are you not living the saintly life? That's what this whole exhortation is about. And again, not just doing the sins or not just a list of do's and don'ts. What's your reputation? Are you, are you walking uh, in, in, as, as a child of light in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation? So there can't even be an accusation. There cannot even be a rumor or a hint as is proper among the saints. And there must be no filthiness and silly talk or coarse jesting which are not fitting, proper, appropriate. Again, not to earn or deserve anything, but because we've already been given everything. Rather, the giving of thanks. For this you know with certainty, that no immoral or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And again, it's a title, it's a position. They are sons of uh, disobedience positionally. We are sons of God positionally. Therefore, do not be partakers with them. You were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. So whatever you used to do as an unbeliever. Now some of us were saved younger and some of us were saved older. And honestly, as a four-year-old, what was my, you know, my dissolute, drunken life, woman chasing, and all that that I did as a four-year-old. Um, but, see now here's the thing, okay? Even if you were saved younger, you still may have had in your later years, your high school years, your college years, you still may have done some idiot things as a rebellious believer. Whatever's in your past, keep it in the past. Forget what lies behind and reach forward. So, formerly darkness, but now you are light. In the Lord, walk as children of light. And this is our calling. And this is why, uh, you know, if we're going to be grumblers, we can't be grumblers and light walkers at the same time. It just just doesn't happen. The moment we start grumbling, we just extinguish the light. (laughs) We start grumbling, we go carnal. We're back in darkness again. So walk as children of light. For the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Now when you read those verses, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord, does that come across to you like we're perfect and sinless, we never make mistakes? (laughs) Of course not. 
That's what the world accuses us. That's why they think, oh, you're a hypocrite because you committed a sin. No, I committed a sin because I'm a sinner. <laughs> but I'm a sinner saved by grace. All right? and, and we're not presenting ourselves as perfect people. He's perfecting us in His grace, but we, we still mess up. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. It goes on to say, and do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. So your buddy wants you to run with because you used to run with him back when you're unbelieving days. And so he calls you up and says, hey, let's go do this. Well, okay. Thanks to Calvary. <laughs> we don't live here anymore. All right. And he wants you to participate with him and you show up shining, bright, you know, that kind of ruins his whole darkness routine. <laughs> Can you imagine? So, uh, yeah. He, and he wants you to, to operate in darkness like he's operating in darkness, like you used to do all the time. And, uh, you know, he wants to go do this thing under cover of darkness and you show up with floodlights. That just rains on his parade, doesn't it? So instead, even expose them. For it is disgraceful even to speak of the things. You know, I wish we should pay more attention to verse 12. Things that ought not be spoken of. There are things that are so disgraceful even to mention. Things that are defiling to even think about. And, um, and yet our culture celebrates them and throws parades. Um, and yet even speaking of them is, is, is so unpleasant that if we finish a particular doctrine or a particular subject or a particular aspect, we just want to go home and take a bath, <laughs> kind of cleanse ourselves, kind of, it's, uh, it's defiling and disgraceful even to speak of the things which are done by them in secret. But all things become visible when they are exposed to the light. And ultimately, this is, again, we're going to have on Sunday the connection here with the Word of God. And all things are open and laid bare in the eyes of the one with whom we have to do. And uh, the Bema seat, whatever we thought we had hidden, we, we learned that no, none of that was hidden. He saw every last bit of it. The Father who sees in secret will repay. Okay. So all things become visible when they're exposed by the light. And everything that becomes visible is light. So let me ask you this, if this is what we're called to do, if we're called to expose the darkness for what it is, how do we do that when we compromise and we tell them, oh, it's okay, you can do what you're doing? Or we tell them, oh, well, you know, love is love. Oh, well, you know. And when we start to compromise and when we redefine terms, that's not love. Love does not rejoice in wickedness, it, it rejoices in the truth. And so uh, when you're compromising and you're compromising under the label of what you're wrongly calling love, now you're compounding the issue. I think you're blaspheming God because God is love and you've just redefined God Himself to some perversion. No, speak the truth in love. And, it, and if it exposes, it exposes. Okay? They won't like it. Cockroaches don't like it when you turn the light on. But what do you do? Yeah. All right. So that's our present testimony. And again, it's a present testimony not of us. They're going to see your good works and glorify you for being so awesome? No. They're going to see your good works and glorify your Father 
It's your Father who's at work in you. It's your Father that's at work in you to will and to do of His good pleasure. We're just an exhibit of, of, uh, of amazing things. Okay? Again, that dokimazo, I encourage you. If you've never done a dokimazo study, do a dokimazo study. The verb is dokimazo, the noun is dokime, the adjective is dokimas. And it's, it's the demonstration for approval. It's the, it's the sample products in the grocery store on Saturdays. Okay? You're walking around and they got these little things and they want you to eat their little sample biscuits or their sample sausages or their sample whatevers. Okay? And the reason why they do that is because they want to approve, they want you to approve the, the amazing things about their product. And they gave you a little sample and it tasted great and it's lunchtime and you're hungry and they say, oh by the way, it's over there on the, sh- on the shelf and it's for, on sale right now. And so you end up buying what you didn't want to buy anyway because you're not supposed to shop when you're hungry. But, that's, but they know what they're doing and that's what these displays are all about. And so we are the display. We are the, we're the, the sausages on the toothpicks, right? And so they should be impressed with us not because of who we are. They should be impressed because of what God can do with knuckleheads like us. And, and, and should be just, it's all by grace. You say, look, we're sinners, we're saved, we're growing. The Word of God teaches us and that's what we're all trying to do. Trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. And that's the fruit of light. So that's our temporal benefit. We also have a, uh, an eternal benefit because that day of Christ is imminent. That day of Christ can be today, can be right now. Faithfully walking in this life supplies a great confidence for the imminent day of Christ. If you're doing what you're supposed to be doing all along, then when the test arrives, you're not panicking. Okay? If you've been kind of goofing off all along and you're not ready for your finals and you think that you can just cram the night before, well, how do you cram the night before when you don't know what night it's going to happen? All right? Do you want confidence at the Bema? Or do you want to shrink away from him in shame at his appearing? 1 John 2 talks about two alternatives for polar opposite reactions to, uh, to our Savior's returning. But faithfully walking in this life supplies a great confidence for the imminent day of Christ. The day of Christ, of course, is the rapture plus the judgment seat that follows the rapture. And so this is what we're looking forward to. And it's nothing to be dreaded. Are you ready to face your master? Do you have a clear conscience? Are you ready to stand before Jesus Christ and say, hey, I'm not afraid of whatever review is going to give because it's by his grace I've done what I've done. It's by his grace I am what I am. And uh, I'm willing to accept all the reward. I'm willing to accept all the loss. Whatever, whatever reward is there that was laid up, His grace let it happen. And whatever loss is there, well, my sin made that happen. <laughs> okay? And so who am I going to blame? All I can say is, uh, yes, sir. Right? No excuse, real sergeant. <laughs> Something of that nature. Because when the fire hits, the wood hay stubble is wood hay stubble. And uh, we can't just say, oh, that's, you're wrong, Lord, you're wrong. That wasn't wood, hay, stubble. That, that should have been gold, silver, and precious stones. Uh-uh. That was wood, hay, and stubble, all right. And, and you just saw it go up in flames. So, that imminent day of Christ. Faithfully walking in this life supplies a great confidence for the future, for the imminent day of Christ. And so it can come today and we're ready for it. Um, again, Philippians 1.6, I am confident of this very thing. He who began a good work in you 
will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? And He began a good work in you. When did He begin a good work in you? The day you got saved. That was the beginning of His good work in you. And we're saved unto good works prepared beforehand. And God's the one that's doing these works in and through us for His good pleasure. And what He got started way back in the day, whenever it was, September 1973 in my case, but whenever it was, all right, He's not done. He's not done because we're still here. And He's going to keep on perfecting it until the day of Christ Jesus. Some of you are perfectionists. I won't talk about myself this time, I'll just talk about you guys. And you know, a perfectionist, does he ever stop tweaking? I mean, I mean a full-blown, true perfectionist, when does it stop? There's always just, uh, I can redo that. Or, uh, let me do one more thing. Or, uh, wait a minute. And then finally, you kind of stop when your wife makes you stop. <laughs> All right, I'm done. Okay. But think about God this way with us. He's the perfectionist. And so today, there's just more tweaking that he's doing. Tomorrow, there's more tweaking that he's doing. Each day, there's more tweaking that he's doing. And you and I, in our carnality, in our humanity, you and I want to uh, say, enough already. Isn't that good enough? And that's the worst idol of all, is good enough. Yeah, I'm content. I like me. Uh, I'm okay with me, the way I am. Isn't that enough? You mean more? More? I mean, that that seems painful. There's there's more? More work to be done? Anyway, he will perfect it, keep on perfecting it until the day of Christ Jesus. Um, Again, verse 10, you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. Right up until and on beyond that, the day of Christ. 2.16, of course, is where we are tonight. Holding fast the word of life, so in the day of Christ I will have reason to glory. And and this is, we have a a third-party celebration here. Because I did not run in vain or toil in vain. He's going to rejoice. Every every Philippian believer he sees standing there getting their rewards. And Paul's going to be like, yeah. This is how I'm going to be towards you guys watching you get your rewards and going, yeah. Okay? Because I know the price you've paid. I know the cross you've borne. I know the, the struggle you've gone through. And I know the, the, uh, the blood, sweat, and tears that have been shed in, in the service of Christ. And so uh, we have that kind of confidence in the day of Christ. 1 Corinthians 1.8 The Corinthians were not lacking in any gift, awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful, through whom you were called into fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. How powerful is that? (laughs) Why are we perfect? Because we're in Christ. How can we not be perfect? We're in Christ. So you end up in a place and you think, I don't deserve to be here. I'm rather underdressed. I, I'm really, they're going to throw me out any minute when they figure out who I am. Oh, wait a minute. I'm with him? Okay. I belong. This is where I belong. And then let me close with 1 John 2, 28 and 29. This one makes some people uncomfortable. And uh, sorry about that, but I mean it says what it says, so It says, uh, now little children abide in Him so that when He appears we may have confidence and not shrink away from Him in shame at His coming. 
This is more than just being saved. This is abiding in Him, living in the Word of God. Are you living in the Word of God? If you are, you're going to have confidence when that trumpet sounds. If you're not, then you're going to shrink away when that trumpet sounds. You're going to be like, and you're going to know immediately what that is. Immediately, like when that alarm clock goes off, and you're like, no, not already. And you don't believe it. The thing's lying to you. It can't be morning already. Oh, it is. Oh, man, I wanted more sleep. Okay? Same thing with uh, the rapture. The trumpet's going to sound, and there are going to be believers that aren't going to like it. They're not going to like it one bit because they're not living for the Lord. They're not abiding in the Word of God. They're having, you know, fun time in carnality and fun time's over. Because they got a twinkling of an eye to get back in fellowship and they're going to be yanked up into the clouds and, and uh, that will not be a happy day. So there it is. If you know that He is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of Him. That's what we're called to do. Walk in the light, practice righteousness. All right, so that's the grumble-free service. We'll uh, come back on Sunday and be able to conclude this with point six, verses 17 and 18. And uh, he closes his third exhortation with another consideration that his physical death was imminent. And, uh, but then he starts talking about his death in priestly terminology. He starts talking about death in terms of uh, the, the sacrifice of the Philippians' faith and and uh, what he's going to contribute to their sacrifice. And it's, uh, it's a priestly message that uh, really um, is a nice tandem with the book of Hebrews. So it's kind of fun that we're going to have both uh, Philippians and Hebrews on, uh, on Sunday morning. All right, so we have that coming up. Father, we thank you for tonight. We thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you for the blessings we have to study, to show ourselves approved. And I pray as we learn this truth, Father, that it's more than... It becomes more than academic information. We don't want to be hearers only who delude ourselves, Father. We want to be hearers and doers. We want to live this out, which means you've taught us tonight principles of of light, and we're to shine as light in such a way that that they see us, they see you, they glorify you in in the shining of our light. So, Father, um, highlight for us the different things that uh, need to be adjusted and how we conduct ourselves in uh, the workplace, in the neighborhood, in our families. Uh, in our flock, everywhere we go and everything we do. Uh, Remind us, Father, that we are lights shining in this crooked and perverse generation. I do thank you, Father, and praise you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.